Welcome in episode 250 of the Mon Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. This episode is brought to you by Mallet Cat. There's a new instrument in the Mallet Cat catalog called the Mallet Cat Express, which is a compact and lightweight two octave design that can also be expanded to four octaves. The Mallet Cat, if you're not familiar, is the world's most powerful MIDI percussion mallet controller and uses true FSR sensing technology. It has a great feel, tons of features, very responsive. Um, and the Mallet Cat Express is, again, a more compact alternative to the more uh, extensive Mallet Cat without sacrificing the features. It comes with 127 factory setups that can be designed to work with general MIDI sound modules, and you can also access 127 programmable setups that allows you to create your own custom configurations utilizing very cool features like splitting, so you can have different sounds assigned to different regions of the keyboard. You can layer multiple sounds, a lot more. You can, ex you can attach expression pedals, all sorts of features that expand traditional keyboard percussion playing from the acoustic instrument of a marimba or vibraphone into the ever-extensive world of MIDI technology. Um, the controller is available with or without its own sound module. The dimensions is 32 inches long, 11 inches wide, and only 2.5 inches thick. It only weighs 9 pounds. This is a, a great option if you want to just start working on your keyboard chops at home for teaching or messing with um, electronic capabilities with your com computer. So for more information, check out catpercussion.com and then search for Mallet Cat Express. They have a ton of really nice videos that, that kind of go through all the features of this thing. Um, and yeah, so check it out. Mallet Cat Express. This episode is also brought to you by Dream Symbols. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know uh, we are always singing the praises of Dream Symbols. Good quality, great prices, great people. Um, check them out. Add some Dream to your to your setup. And if you're new to the show and you haven't checked out Dream Symbols, do yourself a favor. Go over to the website, snoop around, check out some of the demos. They have a ton of cool, more creative effects options as well as a full range of just beautiful sounding B20 bronze cymbals. Personal favorites of mine, the Contact Series is an all-around winner. The Bliss Series is a great option for an old, thin sounding, um, traditional Turkish sounding cymbal. Um, but there's a ton of other options there. Go to Dream Cymbals, check them out, and let's get the show going. <laughs> going to be awesome. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about some educational stuff. Plywood snare drums. So as far as I'm aware, this is not a biased opinion, but as far as I'm aware, Gretsch was the company to introduce the multiplied shell. Is that correct? Uh, to introduce, you know, I don't know the exact, I would, like how you define multiply, more than three or? No, three. Three. Yeah. So going from steam bent, because that's, from what I right. know, that's the original, right? Yeah. So we had steam bent and then that's why we had reinforcement hoops mm -hmm. and then the multiply shell, Gretsch was advertising that as a big deal that this drum will not warp because it's a multiplied thing. So right. the three-ply shell came in. Obviously, Ludwig would have been around at the same time, yep. catching on. Slingerland made Slingerland, the shift. Rogers. Yep. yep. Uh, so then we get the plied shell. So if you guys don't know, plied shell just means what you think. You take laminates of wood and you glue them together. And So you've got a piece of wood, glue, piece of wood, glue, piece of wood, and you can do it with as many plies as you want. Would you say the standard nowadays is a six-ply shell? 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think or it's stand, standard modern. Yeah, probably six. I mean, it, I think it ultimately comes down to thickness. What is the okay. total thickness? Because I I have a kit made out of um, Keller has a Magnum series, which is thicker. So you can use fewer plies and get the same thickness as like a six ply shell. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, I think it's standard six is probably, and that, that is the Gretsch formula, isn't it? Or is it? It five? is now. Yes. Yeah. No, it's it's six. Is so it? if if you had. Uh, if you had, let's say, a USA Custom, it would be one ply of maple. And this comes to one of your other points that we'll talk about later in the article. But one ply of maple, then four plies of gum, right. then one more ply of maple. And then, like you said, they call that a maple drum. Yeah, drum, exactly. Which is crazy. Yeah, so um, I did this this big feature story in the March issue, whatever's out now with Dennis on the cover. And the whole premise was I wanted to know what each of the most popular would – what do they sound like? What is their actual natural sound? So – my buddy Chris at Bucks County was into it. He built six drums, um, all to the exact same specs, but with one species of wood per drum. Wow. So everything is the same except for the wood. Like the bearing edges are identical, the number of plies, the thickness, the hardware, the heads, the tuning. I was so, so nerdy about the tuning to where down to the each frequency of each lug is identical on all six drums. Love <laughs> the it. snare tension itself was identical on all six drums. The mic placement, obviously, I played the same dynamic and the same groove on all six drums. Just to see if I could really tell a significant difference between maple or jatoba, for instance, or walnut okay. and birch or whatever. So we got the obvious choices, maple and birch, and then we got cherry, walnut. Those are kind of like the four common shells. And then he suggested giving two harder woods that are a little bit more rare. So we got hickory, which is what Chris says, the hardest domestic American wood you can get. Okay. And then jatoba, which is harder than hickory. So two really hard woods and then four of what we kind of are pretty familiar with in drum making. Wow. Yeah, so gotta get, I gotta get me some Jatoba drumsticks. <laughs> you know, there might be a company making Jatoba. I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you want to give these a listen? Well, what do we got here? Uh, if you go to the website, you can check out all six drums individually. But I thought it'd be kind of fun to see if you can actually tell the difference. So I've got this is going to be back to back. There's either a maple or a birch drum. I'm not going to tell you what order it's in. So you're going to hear one drum, and it's going to stop, and I'm going to play another drum, and it's going to stop. And one of those is maple, and one of those is birch. Okay. So you want to try? Take a listen? I'll try. I'll play your <laughs> little games. <laughs> So let's just mm. talk about what you're hearing first. Let me tell you the tuning. Okay. This was what I would consider my starting point, medium tight tuning that I use for every drum that comes in here to kind of give me a ground zero. So okay. the lug pitch on the batter head was D and the bottom head was G above that. So it's a fourth D over G. Okay. So it's medium tight. It's I would say it's higher than what I would probably ever use it outside of just having fun playing the drum. But that's kind of my Got ground it. zero. I can actually hear 
the most of the shell, but it's not so tight. You know, it's kind of that happy medium for me. Right. Well, the first thing I hear is that there's a reason why birch and maple are the two most popular drum woods besides maybe affordability for the manufacturers. It, it's both of them gave a nice clear tone and the overtones weren't squirrely at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sounded good and pure. And I know that if we weren't being this specific about it, I know that one piece of tape or half of a gel and it's like, cool, we're in the studio. Let's go. Yep. Drum. And so, man, I gotta say I'm, I'm playing the, uh, princess bride game in my head i'm like would he put the name maple first when he knows maple isn't going to be first or would he put maple first knowing that i'm going uh, i personally think that the first drum was maple and the second drum was birch okay what for what were your clues um i felt that the second drum was just a little bit harsher to me like it, it um and it wasn't quite I mean, they were actually pretty similar. I was shocked how similar they were, but I felt like the first drum had a little bit of a wider waveform to it, and the second drum was just a little bit sharper and would cut through, and that's always been my opinion of birch. Like, all right, I'm in a rock band. I'm going to get a birch wood snare drum. I'm looking for a. Uh, I'm looking for like a winner winner bell. Ding 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 ding. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Sweet. Oh god, my entire website just got validated. I'm not playing round two. Goodness oh, gracious! So yeah. <laughs> now here's what's interesting with these two drums. I started with these two because I was like, obviously these are the ones that everyone's going to go with first. And 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 for years we've been told they're drastically different. Right. I was shocked how much, how similar they were. <laughs> so yep. what I noticed in the room playing the drums, which is a totally different experience than how it translates to microphones. The maple drum was just broader. The sound just felt bigger and broader and kind of filled the room out more. But at the same time, it kind of felt vanilla and generic. Okay. The birch, it had a, it just felt like it had more smack and power and punch to it, but still felt like it, it covered all the frequencies. Right. So as a player, the birch actually felt more fun and more exciting to play wow. which is kind wow. of contrasting what i've always thought i always thought birch would be a little bit restricted and not you know just a one-trick pony but sure. out of all six of these drums if i was going to pick one to go like play a gig with it probably would have been the birch well you know what's funny is in the article that you wrote you talk about how we as consumers also need to do a bit of research and due diligence on our own to find out birch isn't birch, maple isn't maple. Yeah. There are so yeah. many different factors that come in. And I remember when I went from DW Drums to Yamaha, what what whatever Yamaha's using for maple and birch is not what DW is using. Yeah, I was right. like, these are drastically different drums. And so maple isn't just maple. So I think that if you have a bad experience with a wood, you need to make sure that you try some other drums in that same wood because there's so many factors. Uh, I mean, I think you mentioned in the article there's different species of mahogany. Yeah, yeah, mahogany is right. a big one. And birch, too. I mean, it's like a generic term for a lot of different species of woods, depending on where gotcha. it's harvested. So, yeah, birch. Um, and also the birch drum is the one we're giving away. So make sure you go to moderndrummer.com and enter the, the giveaway for that drum. That drum you just heard, we're giving away. It sounded fantastic. I mean, both those drums – I. They both sounded fantastic. There was just a little bit of leftover Rage Against the Corn Tones in me that, that was like, that second drum is what I would need to cut yeah. through the guitars. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, But I, it didn't. It wasn't louder, so that kind of was 
against wow, kind really? of convent. None of okay. these drums were any louder than the other. I just felt like the birch had more more impact in a good way. Wow. Well, it sounded fantastic. All right, so now we're going to get a little little saucy. Cherry versus walnut. Yeah, so let's define what we think cherry and walnut does first. Okay. Got any so <laughs> cherry to me, well, the only cherry drum I've ever owned is actually the Modern Drummer Anniversary Drum, uh-huh. the 13. And that's solid. That's a solid show. Yeah, and I always thought that cherry was super hard and not warm at all and not response or um, not sensitive. I always thought it was just this like kind of tough hardwood. And it, the drum that I have that I'm assuming Bruce made, mm-hmm. yep, Bruce is, yeah, is not that. It's it's fantastic. It has everything I love. So cherry then became once again talking about one drum can change your opinion. All of a sudden, I was like, I love cherry. Yeah, but walnut for me has always been the dead thuddy Mm. just detune your whole kit you got a walnut kit and so i'm expecting the first one to sound brighter well i'm expecting one of them to sound brighter i will call that cherry and one of them to sound a little more dead and thuddy and i will call that walnut okay all right let's link this Where they're not all the same drum. <laughs> no, once again, I was kind of surprised. Uh, that time I did something different. So the first time we listened, I listened to the whole thing all the way through. This time I was just bouncing between 20 seconds in and one minute and 20 mm-hmm. seconds, really ABM right quick. I think the first one was cherry and I think the second one was walnut, only based off of what I said earlier about one of them is going to be brighter and one of them is going to be a little thuddier. It is the opposite. Son of a <laughs> The first one is actually the walnut drum. That part of this podcast was brought to you by bobslessons.com. <laughs> the first one that I got right, that was all Mike's lessons. Okay, but I think you brought up, I mean, this brings up an excellent point. I had the same master craftsman make all six of these drums. Okay. And he knows what to do with each of these timbers to make them the most versatile, all-purpose sounding drum possible. So gotcha. that's that's a huge factor that I think we, we often overlook. Like, let me just get a birch drum from this company and a maple drum from that company. So, and what we're saying is if you had like a major manufacturer doing this, most likely they're going to say, well, th- we do these bearing edges. We do this snare bed. Yeah. Now we're just doing it with walnut instead of birch. Right, exactly. Or maple. Gotcha. And, and okay. I think if it's not, I mean, if it's just coming off a of factory, then you're going to have all kinds of different factors. Like, what's the the moisture content in the wood that day and whereas you know chris is like this is the timber i bought and i know what it's going to do so i need to make sure i do this with it to get the most out of it so i think the more i gotta say that walnut sounded great by the way well the walnut was again what you hear in the room and as a player perspective is totally different than what translates to the listener and to microphones for sure the walnut was the most ear friendly of the six it just had yeah. like a softer, rounder sound that as a player, I could. this would be my acoustic gig drum. Okay. Like there was no harshness. Rim shots didn't feel like they were punching me in the ear canal or anything like that. 
Now, could let me ask you this: Could you tell a difference in the feel of the drums? Like as a player, do they respond no. different? They to all, okay. That's the thing. That's that's again. That's the craftsmanship. They all. He knew. He knows what he needs to do to make it as responsive as possible, as dynamic as possible. So all of them performed wow. nearly identically. As like response was was phenomenal. The dynamic range was phenomenal. The tuning range was phenomenal. There were subtle differences in timbre that I think you can hear them when you're playing the drum. You, I don't know if you can really hear them when you're 10 feet in front of the kit and with a microphone on it, you really would have to, the tuning would kind of change, I think. Like that walnut drum, if I tuned it a lot lower, you would probably immediately say, yeah, that's walnut. Wow. And the cherry, if I tuned it higher, you would have said, okay, that's that's cherry. I wonder if it just at some point comes down to, I guess the way that I would see a, a Fender P bass or a Fender Jazz bass, which is sometimes you just need to get a good bass. Right. Out of the 60, one of these, because of all those factors you mentioned and the moisture content and everything, one of these is better than the other 59. Mm-hmm. And if you had just a great drum set, no matter who made it and what it was made out of, it, if it was done right and the bearing edges were perfect and you tuned it right, it's going to sound like a drum set. It's, it's going to sound, sound really good. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, I mean, there isn't one wood out of these, and there's two more that we're, we're not going to – they're at moderndrummer.com if you want to hear Jatoba and Hickory. Those were more extreme. Um, so just go check those out. But I think as far as these four kind of woods that we're all sort of familiar with, any one of them could have covered any gig for me. It just would have been subtle differences. The birch and the cherry had a little bit more focus, a little bit more punch. The maple was kind of the generic doer generic. of all things. And the walnut just felt a tiny bit darker and less abrasive acoustically. But yeah, you tiny, know, and, tiny. And what's what's crazy is that if we get rid of the placebo effect – Whatever it is that you liked about the walnut on one other human could be everything they wouldn't like about the walnut because yeah, of yeah. personal taste. And that's why they make all these things. So I thought that was really cool. Um, you know, just to kind of wrap up this topic, you know that I've been part of this thing with Jefferson at Sugar Percussion. Right. And I've I've commissioned a drum from him. And he said, you know what, why don't we do this before I start guessing? Because it's not like he's going to make me a drum. I play and go, I don't like it. And then he starts over. It's like, (laughs) well, that's your drum, bro. You bought it. (laughs) That's your drum. (laughs) So he said, why don't we do this before I get deep into this? Let me send you three drums from my personal collection. Mm. I'm going to send you a yellow drum, a blue drum, and a red drum. And I'm not telling you what any of them are made out of. Oh, interesting. And he's like, tell me what you like about the yellow. And what you don't like, then tell me what you like about the blue and what you don't like, and then same with the red. So I have three of uh, three drums here from his personal collection, and they're very different species of wood. And he won't tell me what they're made out of, and I'm then reporting back to him what I liked and what I didn't like about each. And then that's what he's going to then base this drum off that he's making for me on. Have you done any testing yet? I have. I, I just played the yellow one, and I can tell you right now, only because this place has been getting painted, so we've just. I mean, it's been kind of unusable for me for a little bit as far as testing drums. So the yellow one, I feel so not legit right now. The yellow drum <laughs> with with uh, squiggly metal pieces on the bottom uh, the, <laughs> and like a knob that turns them on and off. So anyways, the yellow drum right away completely squashed what I thought about stave drums. Uh. It's incredibly sensitive. It's... It's beautiful. You know, the only real stave drum that I've liked has been the one that I got from Cherry Hills that I then, as soon as I made a video about it, we had to send it back because somebody bought it. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, I mean, it's a one-off, so it's not like you can make another one. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so this, uh, 
as soon as I played it, I was like, okay, there. What I will say, even though I'm still part of the Stave Hater group, <laughs> I will say there is a massive difference, more difference than I was ready for between high level craftsmanship stave and general drum company putting out a $300 stave drum. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. mean. It's the a massive difference. Because his ears are tuned to what it needs to do. So he's going to manipulate mm-hmm. that wood to get it to do what it needs to do. And that's something that, that Ron Donetta has been kind of preaching forever that like i don't need to tell you what wood it is because i'm going to make it sound good whatever it is like i'm not going to give you a bogus drum it's going to you know (laughs) (laughs) you don't need to know what it is just know it's going to sound good (laughs) oh man well i yeah i'm so i literally took it out of the box and played it live in a live lesson on mikeslessons.com and you could just see on my face being like oh crap this thing sounds really good (laughs) Yeah, dang it. But I mean, obviously, the whole point of this is I want it to sound good. They're, these drums have been around for a long time for a reason. I Clearly, I don't want at the end of all this to be like, I was right, Stave sucks. Yeah. Like, that's not my goal. My goal is, why do I think that Stave, why do I have all these negative connotations to Stave? Can you fix that for me, Jefferson? And that's that's the whole point of this exercise. And then in the end, um, I will have a Stave drum here for my students that they can find in my campers so they can have a great example of, yeah, this is what a stave can be. Interesting. You know, know, I think the theory is, maybe I'm wrong, but the reason plywood became so standard is because in in the past, solid, like, steam bent drums, if they got wet, they would just open up and you'd have, like, a go back to plank form. (laughs) Yeah. And stave drums over time would shrink and then basically crack and explode. Okay. So I think the whole selling point with plywood was... Your drum's not going to explode or <laughs> yeah. or open up on you. Yeah, that's. I mean, like I said, in uh, I, I don't remember what ad it was, but I was listening to my pick of the week last uh, this week, my last week's pick of the week, which was the Drum History podcast, mm-hmm. and um, and he did a history of Gretsch, and they were saying that it was like in the 1930s there was an ad campaign, and the whole campaign was our drums won't warp, which means <laughs> the only reason to explain that is because everyone else's drums were warping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like right now, if somebody said that, I'd be like, okay, uh, I haven't really had any problems with my Thomas Silverstar lately. <laughs> it's not a real big selling point anymore. Oh, but at the time, it must have been a massive selling point because of Stave and, and Solid Shell. So, That's all cool. right. I love education. <laughs> I hate learning, man. I oh, hate learning. God. No, I don't. I love it. I I thrive off it. Come on, man. We're talking about eighth notes and sextuplets. Yeah. So what we're talking about is the bane of my existence for the past six weeks. <laughs> it's transitioning from eighth note to sixteenth note triplets and maintaining a strong sense of where that offbeat eighth note lands. I know I've talked about it last time we talked about this topic with singles. If you just do four eighth notes and then single stroke uh, two sets of sextuplets, I have a hard time maintaining that left that lands on the and. I still do. I'm counting out loud. I'm playing with a metronome. I'm doing all that stuff. I still feel like I'm swimming past it. So you want to up the ante even further, play those 16th note triplets as double strokes, and then the and is going to land on the second note of a double. And if you're like me, you're going to want to quit, and you're going to have to go back to 40 BPM and start all over again. (laughs) Okay, so first thing, let's get this out of the way. How do you count 16th note triplets? Um, I don't. I just make sounds. Okay, so you sing it. Okay, so one of the things that you guys can do 
Uh, I've never been a fan of the one triplet, two triplet, or the one lolly, two lolly, or triplet, triplet, because it introduces one, it steals the number out of the pulse. And then the other thing, well, if you're doing triplet, 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 if you did seven of those, you might not know you're on the seventh one eventually. Uh, The other thing is, it doesn't really give me a language that I can speak with other musicians that might have been studied. So generally, I count eighth note triplets, one and uh, two and uh, and then with 16th note triplets, I just count those twice if I have to. So one and a one and a two and a two and a three and a mm. three and a four and a four and a. Uh, it's funny that 16th note triplets and 32nd notes don't have a set in stone music theory. This is how they are counted. You know, I think it's because they're so hard to say. When you get right. to that certain speed, I mean, you're right. going to slow yourself down just by trying to say that stuff. Say, That's why yeah, I yeah. even do it. Singing it is great, uh, you know. And so for this rhythm, uh, for number one that he's written out, we've got a four-bar phrase, two beats of eighth notes followed by two beats of sixteenth note triplets. So one and two and three and a three and a four and a four and a one and two. That happens twice. Then a full bar of eighth notes. Then a full bar of sixteenth note triplets. I would say before even getting into this, and we can start the conversation here. You need to be able to play this as singles before you tackle his sticking pattern. Yeah, exactly. Which was part one of this series. So this is Bill Bachman's eights and sixes article series. That's we're actually we just opened up the April issue. So if you want to follow along, it's the one with the readers poll uh, winners, which we'll come back to. But so this is the second part. The first part focused on that single stroke version, which I think we probably covered last month or something. Right. And then from there, I think you need to be able to play eighth note triplets as double strokes, not 16th note triplets. You need to feel something that was meant to be felt in groups of three, mm-hmm. but in groups of four. So if you can find two separate surfaces and literally just count eighth note triplets out loud, one and a uh, two and uh, while playing right, right, left, left, one and a uh, two and a uh, three and a uh, four and a uh, one and a uh, two and a uh, three and a uh, four and a. Uh, and just get used to even saying that while playing. That's going to help. And then eventually you can internalize the pulse of those triplets and then take that to the 16th note triplet version of this, mm-hmm. which is the big kid stuff. Now, here's here's where my brain melts. So example one, it's okay. phrased as eighth notes and 16th note triplets. Example right. two, it's written as eighth notes and eighth note triplets, eighth note triplets. with double strokes on each of the eighth note triplet partials. Right. Psychologically, I go from thinking, all right, eighth note pulse to a quarter note pulse. But it's the exact same rhythm. So there's no, there's, I have a hard time looking at example two, which has eighth note triplets and counting the eighth notes through the triplets. And then say, vice right. versa, if I play number one, which is 16th note triplets, which naturally is divided in eighth note subdivisions, to then think triplets over top of that. You see why my brain is just melting on this seemingly beginner <laughs> basic stuff? Because I'm all about controlling that middle note. And right. if I shift into a triplet mode, the time becomes quarter note based, and that's not good for me because then I'm losing all that subdivision control. I want right. to be able to count eighth notes through all of these exercises. That's the goal. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And putting that and of the eighth note over the top of eighth note triplets gives you a three over two polyrhythm that you don't really want to be doing. shouldn't be the right there. Field. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing that's tough is if you were to count the eighth note triplet and you were diddling the notes. So if, if my hands were playing uh, just solid one bar, one and uh, two and uh, three and uh, four and uh, you you need to even get used to playing two notes with one hand diddling 
and only saying one thing with your voice, like yeah. one and uh, two and uh, three and uh, four and uh, one and uh, two and uh, three and uh, I mean I'm accenting it just to display it, but even that was tough. I remember trying to play two notes with my hand, and my my voice would just go one one. I was like, whoa, <laughs> what just happened? Like, why can't I physically do something and only say what? Like, I want to play two notes and say one note. Yeah, uh, fortunately so, yeah. for me, like marching band drilled that into my sure. my, my mentality where you play a, you think a subdivision and you can double any one of those with a double stroke so that that helps but I don't like I don't like the inaccuracy of shifting subdivisions and not being able to maintain the smaller subdivision. That's what's driving me nuts. So mm-hmm. going from eights to triplets and we just like okay it sort of gets faster. What actually <laughs> that fourth note of your of your double stroke triplet is going to land exactly on the and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what's driving me absolutely bonkers. <laughs> Forty and that, years and that old. Fourth, <laughs> no, that fourth note. I mean, it, it sounds simple until you actually look at the notation. But that fourth note is the second stroke of your double, and that's yeah. that's where we're not used to having that be the downbeat of, or the backbeat of anything. Right. And I think that that you know, number three in his example really is where things would go south for most people, where you have to accent those ands and you're feeling the and as the true pulse yep um but at the same time this type of work i think this type of work for the modern drum set drummer is so much more important than some of the craziness that we see out there because if you can have this whatever you play will have command and control yeah you won't be swimming around the beat and that's that, that for me it's gotten to be such like a I, I wasn't aware of it, and now I'm aware of it. And whenever I hear it, it makes my teeth grind. I'm like, Ugh, you're, you know, like the subdivisions are not there, and it's driving me right. nuts. So yeah, that number three would be the one that I think for me, I'm going to spend a lot of time with that. Even if I don't accent the ands, because I think he he marked it as like a staccato note, which I think right. is just like a subtle accent. Meaning, um, even just trying to think, count just the off beats and play these exercises. It's all going back to counting out loud. I've been talking about that forever with yeah. students and friends. Like, remember when your first drum teacher said count out loud? Well, go back and do it. <laughs> yeah. Once again, we have to thank our sponsors, Dream Symbols, longtime supporter of the Modern Drummer podcast. Uh, we appreciate you guys. And if anyone out there is curious, check out. Um, gosh, if I had to pick, if I had to do a pick of the week for Dream Symbols, I really, really dig the. Um, stackers they have they have some pre-configured stackers that come with a pang and a splash that gives you that really tight gnarly alternative hi-hat sound um it seems to be working a lot of applications but then um the contact series is an all-around thin classic sort of trashy but warm and luscious sounding uh, line of symbols the dark uh, dark matter is really cool i mean there's so much cool stuff so we have to um Again, thank Dream Symbols for being so supportive of the show over the years. Hopefully a lot of you have already checked them out. And if you haven't, go over to dreamsymbols.com, snoop around, and then make sure your local dealer gets them in stock. This episode is also brought to you by Malakat Express. Again, if you are a keyboard percussionist or if you have any skills with keyboard percussion and you want to incorporate that into a more electronic world, the new Malakat Express is a great option. It's a compact, lightweight, two-octave design um, that has a capability of being expanded to four octaves if you need that range or if you just want to keep everything compact and just two octaves so you can maybe incorporate into your drum set or have uh, you know a tighter setup for teaching or programming. 
Um, this is a great option. It's even compact enough where it can be, um, you can use just a snare drum stand, like a sturdy snare drum stand to hold it. You don't need a keyboard stand or anything uh, special for that. Again, it has 20, 127 factory setups that should work with almost any general mini sound module. Um, and then you have 127 programmable setups so you can set up your own creative configurations if you want to layer sounds or have, you know, split the keyboard into multiple sounds. Um, and if you have pedals, expression pedals, um, all sorts of options to really expand the capability of this instrument beyond just your run-of-the-mill uh, MIDI controller. Super powerful, but not um, not as huge as a full-range keyboard. So check it out, the Mallet Cat Express. Um, there is tons of great um, demos on their, their page to show all the features of this instrument. Uh, I was spent the morning uh, nerding out on all of those as well. So if you want some more specs on it, it's a 32-inch instrument that's 11 inches wide, 2.5 inches deep, which is small enough to fit in a drum set, maybe to the left of your hi-hat or right of your ride cymbal, or even in the front if you want to go a little bit more integrated. Um, I will be using this a bunch for my own personal explorations here soon. Um, so yeah, again, thank Cat Percussion. It go to cat that's k-a-t percussion.com uh, slash mk express. That'll get you right to the Mallet Cat Express page. Check it out. So let's talk some education grids. Grid systems. So I guess we have to define it first. Um, okay. So my experience with the term grid in relation to drumming was definitely marching band. And sure. Almost every technical exercise we learned was based on the grid where you take a concept where it's maybe it's accent taps or flams or diddles and you move you move it through every subdivision that you're focusing on 16th notes or triplets or right. whatever. So the grid itself would be the subdivisions and all of the the notes inside that subdivision. Right. So in between each each variation we would play just a solid measure of the basic grid, the subdivision, the 16th notes, the triplets, right. and then we'd add an accent on the first of four for a measure and then we'd play the the 16th and then we'd add an accent on the second of four and then go back to 16th. So every time we would come back to the the check pattern is what we called it. Okay. which was the basic subdivision. Right. So I think grids are important because one thing that you start to realize early on when it comes to independence is certain note placements give your body more trouble than other note placements. The downbeats are something that almost all of us live with our whole life. We feel this pulse in music. We tap our foot to music. So that would be the numbers. No matter what the subdivision is, there will still be numbers. If you have 16th notes, it's 1E and a 2E and a 3. If you have 16th note triplets, 1 and a 1 and a 2 and a 2 and a 8th notes, 1 and 2. There will always be numbers. There will always be downbeats. So we're very comfortable putting things there like a bass drum or a snare drum hit. The ands are another thing that we live with. So those generally become the upbeats, but a lot of music is focused on upbeats. So if you mm -hmm. listen to reggae, if you listen to jazz, it's the two and four for them, but we still feel it as an upbeat. And so when it comes to placing a bass drum or a snare drum or a ride cymbal hit on the ands of the grid, feel pretty good. It's those damn E's and U's. Yeah, that's, and this is something uh, I've been stressing with a lot of students and in my workshops is... is don't think of the E's and the U's as something you have to hurry and get to the next downbeat. Like, I feel like almost everyone is like, when they get to the E and the U, they're on ice. Like, oh gosh, it's the right. E and the U, let me hurry up and get back to the downbeat. I I like to sit on just the E for extended periods of time and, and to the point when it's like, okay, now it's 
like I hear it and it's not, it's its own entity rather than it's something that's not a downbeat. <laughs> you know? Right, right. No, it just is. It's just a note. And that's why the grid is so important. So when Mike and I are talking about this, just in case you're lost right now, and if you've played for less than five years, there's a good chance you're going, I kind of understand, but I don't fully understand. What we're talking about when we say the E is inside the grid of 16th notes. That w- the grid would be all of them. One E and a, two E and a, three E and a, four E and a. We're talking about isolating one note per pulse. One E and a, two E and a, three E and a, four E and a. And a lot of times, the E's are the ones that get rushed towards the downbeat. One E and a, two E and a, because yeah. you're trying to get it in. The U's get kind of pushed late into the next downbeat. One E and a, two E and yep. a, three E. Yeah, almost so, always. Yeah. Right. And then eventually, if you can learn to live with those E's and U's, one E and a, two E and a. Listen to my snapping. It's just snapping. Yeah. It's not. It's not easy to you know. Yeah, I could if I kept snapping for another five seconds. Most of you would turn that into eighth notes. Yeah, it'd be like cut, cut. Yeah, here we go. It's like, well, that's why it's so important to understand this grid system. So when you start with a grid system, one of the things they're most useful for is cycling through to find your problem areas. So if I was playing a basic pop groove with my hands, one and two and three and four, and I would grid the downbeats. One, two, three. Then the E's. One E and, E and, E and. Then the ands. One and, and. And finally the us. One, a two, a three, a four, a one. And recycle that over and over and over again. You're playing that with the that- bass drum. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You're going in, case, through- in case you couldn't hear the floor <laughs> of my studio. <laughs> so you're playing eighth notes with the hi-hat or ride. Yep. Two and four with the snare. Snare. And then you're cycling the bass drum through each of the four possible 16th note, single note subdivisions. Exactly, which is keeping them equidistant. They're not syncopated yet. Even if they're all showing up on the E's, that doesn't make them syncopate, syncopated uh, because they're still, the distance between each note is the same. So what that's good for, especially when it comes to foot ostinatos where you're trying to maybe work out some left-hand independence, is finding the problem note. There will be one or two of those that is way harder than the others. Mm -hmm. And then you can go, okay, today I'm literally, just like Mike said, I'm going to work on my E all day long. That placement is giving me physical trouble. I need to rewire my my brain and my body to accept that placement so it's not awkward. Because at some point, and I think this is why with marching and with jazz band, you and I both had to do this. At some point, there's an accent in one of those places, and we yeah. our, our heart starts palpitating leading up to that because <laughs> we know that physically our body doesn't want to hit that placement because we're not comfortable with it. Yeah, that's a good – this would be a good uh, opportunity to put a mirror up in front of you and see yeah. what happens to your body when you play that because almost everyone, they start gritting their teeth and cr- – you know, the, like they're – They tense. They, they yeah. get off balance. Their body gets just really out of control. So if you focus on just how can I keep my body comfortable as if I'm playing a downbeat, but just play the E. It's definitely harder than it than it sounds, but I think if right. you can do, if you can look at yourself and say what's happening when I play that E, you're probably tensing up. Well, then it's never going to feel comfortable. So you have to kind of breathe right. through it, <laughs> allow it to be, yeah. and not worry about it like being difficult, quote unquote. I think also this is something where tempo comes to play because yeah. finding an E at one forty and going one E and a two E and a three E is a little tougher than one E and a two E and yeah. and so you have to build up the tempo of that feeling of that placement. So with a grid, 
that's where you guys can use something where you say, okay, I want to build bass drum freedom or snare drum freedom or even definitely bell placement freedom between, you know, kick on one and three, snare on two and four, mm-hmm. and where do you want to place the bell? So a grid is a great thing for that. So we cycle through those single note placement options. And then what happens after that for you? Do you go to two notes or do you start syncopating the rhythm? Um, no, this actually falls right in line with my recent clinic approach it's um i do single notes with the bass drum single notes with the snare drum single notes with the bass drum and snare drum single okay. notes with the left foot and then uh snare drum left foot bass drum left foot and then finally all three limbs so i exhaust the idea of only playing one note one sixteenth note per beat per pulse okay and it eventually it becomes either bass drum snare drum or left foot while keeping some sort of ostinato with the right hand and that, okay. that could be hours, weeks, months of practice. Oh, sure. And there's Absolutely. a lot of music there, too. That's kind of what I try to emphasize is there's a lot of music living in just that just that concept. You, you won't right. sound like you're practicing basic material. It's like there's, if, you, if you really string them together, you can play m- really intricate melodies, especially once sure. the left foot starts getting involved. So that's – I do – bass drum is definitely first, then snare drum. Then I work on the bass drum snare drum combo, and then I bring the left foot in. I try not to jump the left foot in too soon because that could be such a hurdle technically. Now, when you bring, let's say you bring in the left foot, do the other two limbs that you were using, kick and snare, do they return to their basic whatever they were doing? No, so at that kick, point, it's 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 just left foot. It's a melody. Well, you start with the left foot, and then it's can I improvise with the right foot and left foot playing just one. One sixteenth okay. note per pulse, and then can I do a bass drum, snare drum, and left foot improvising? So let's say that I was playing eighth notes on my ride, ding, 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 ding. You're saying that you would go ding, chit, goom, ding, ching, goom, Okay, work through all four, and then in each step, I I add the improvisation element. So if I master, if I think I master the bass drum with single notes, then I improvise with single notes, and I'm, inevitably I'm going to find some stuff that feels awkward, and I go back and sure. rework it. So I always yeah. add a little bit of just freeform improvisation once I think I've mastered one step of it. Yeah, same. And then when it comes to the doubles, we can st- we can go through that same grid starting with two notes. So we'd have one E and a two E and a three E and a four E shift, one E and a two E and a three E and a four E shift, one E and a two E and and a four e shift one a two e a three a four e a one. So once we get through that, then the grid isn't exhausted. Now you could definitely do triple notes. Uh, you just have to decide: are three notes in a row something that you're going to use? Personally, I do it because I I actually use it quite often, especially with my right hand. I want to have one e and one e and a and a two. And a one E, a two right. E. I want to have all of those down. So I do <clears throat> the threes as well. But that's just the most basic form of the grid. After that, you you start seeing this whole thing as a grid and realizing, well, wait, couldn't if we have sixteen total possible placements, I could have the one, the five, the six, the seven, mm-hmm. the nine, the ten. You know, you can start plugging in things. But I think what it helps is it helps people with their time because even if you're playing the most syncopated rhythm, you still realize it's attached to a grid. It's not just this random placement of notes. Yeah. You know, if I'm playing da 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 da, it's one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a one e and a two e and a three e and a four e and a. Yeah, it's really when you start stringing 
these little fragments together. Now you're making music and you're, yeah. you're hopefully not losing sight of the quarter note. So then that's when, yeah. the, for me, the real creative freedom opens up when I, I know at all times where the quarter note is. So then yeah, the pulse. I can kind of let the rhythms go in some crazy ways that might trick my ear if I wasn't if I wasn't aware of where the quarter note was. So if you're listening to me sure. play something, I'm like, man, it sounds like you're really off the pulse. But it's just because I'm, I'm so cognizant of how each of these rhythms fits. Maybe I sure. played a bunch of fives in a row. I don't know. It's just what I felt like playing. But I know right. where the pulse is. I didn't consciously say, okay, play some fives. No, just play right. some sixteenth notes in weird groupings and see what happens. Sure. Well, and I think also this isn't the end of anything. Once you have this, this is just a way to f- figure out – it's, it's almost like the beginning of independence in whatever you're working on. If you have this down, I can tell you, first of all, the numbers do go away. The grid goes from one E and to da, 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 to eventually it's just there inside you. You feel that grid. Yeah. I'm not actually singing da, 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 <laughs> while I'm playing drums. But you kind of have to in the beginning. Absolutely, because yeah. I have to match this stuff up to something. Yeah. Then there's this whole next phase that maybe we'll get into on a different podcast where it, you, if you hear of the term greasy or in between the cracks, eventually you let the grid go. Yeah. And, you, and, you, and that's when you're leaving the quantized feel behind and saying, okay, I can put this stuff wherever I want. I'm not rushing. I'm not dragging. I'm just not sticking to this flawless grid. Now my grid is a little wobbly on purpose. Yeah. As long as that corner pulse is strong internally right. and, and you're able to get, like convey that you have that strong pulse, I think you can play anything you want over top of that. I agree. I just think that you have to have the... It's almost like you have to have the quantized version first so that you can then break away from it. You have to have good time first to then say, like, just like you said, in between a quarter note, if we're dealing in a 16th note grid, there's three more notes that can rush and drag, and I can still hit that quarter note right on spot. Yeah, exactly. So you have to know what you're doing to do it, or I would say, or it could be an environmental issue where you grew up with it and your environment is a you're a product of that so that new orleans feel just comes out of you you can't you know that 16th note grid is not fun for your soul <laughs> yeah but i often wonder can, can stanton more play to a grid because it's right. everything he plays swings in, in the most normal natural way but right in a beautiful way but it does yeah i mean i don't want to hear sissy strut unquantized <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 16th note grid oh god so, i want to program that beat now see what it sounds like it'll be just like when siri did uh uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Bernard Purdy. Oh, yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I love that. That's one of oh, my That's favorites. good stuff. <laughs> All right, everybody. So hopefully that at least gives you a little insight into the world of grid systems, why they're so important. All right, let's dive into some nerdy stuff, huh? Mm, this is nerdy to a whole different level. <laughs> <clears throat> so you did a kick mic shootout. Yes, and I did. A little bit different than what most people would expect. Most people would expect uh, the D6 and the mm-hmm. Beta 52 inside the bass drum hole. You're going four inches outside of the bass drum and yes. going. F- so now let me ask you this, because for me, as you know, my only kick drum sound comes from that exact position and yep. a large diaphragm condenser mic. Would you ever go for your kick sound with one of these mics, or is this only to enhance the fact that you have another mic inside your kick? Uh, both. This would be okay. so, you know, I mentioned it probably a month ago that I totally dismantled my studio and I'm going to build it back piece by piece. So I wanted to start with overheads, 
bass drum mic that's not inside the drum. So I wanted to get just a general, what does the drum set sound like in the room representation with three mics. And that's what the front bass drum mic does for me. It's function. Um, is to just capture the drum. What does the drum actually yeah. sound like? Now, if I have a mic inside the drum, I'll probably use that outside mic more f- exclusively for low frequencies, which means I'll probably put it much closer to the head and EQ it so it's just subby. Um, so the shoot, I did a whole bunch of shootouts. The one we're going to focus on now was I took eight different microphones, all large diaphragm condenser mics, put them exactly the same distance from the front of the head, which is four inches. Now, how did I come up with four inches? This is where it gets really nerdy. Because uh, <laughs> I also did a shootout we can talk about where I went from three to six to nine to 12 inches and kind of examine that. But four inches because the drum was tuned to G sharp and I found oh the length of the wavelength of G sharp <laughs> and Bro. then kept dividing that in half until I found something that would be within inches. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> so just over four inches seemed to be the spot where I would at least be getting an octave overtone <laughs> captured. <laughs> However, creamy content makes you feel every nerd thing you just said. I mean, you're talking to a guy that really, really enjoys astrophysics. Uh. That is lame. Okay, but that's cool. That's cool. Well, here's the thing: the the note G sharp one, like the lowest G sharp on a piano, which is what this bass drum was tuned to. The wavelength is like, like, it's insane. So you can't possibly capture an, an entire wavelength from start to okay. finish. You'd have to be like in the next neighborhood, right? So I just kept. And if you divide that frequency, I think again, I'm not a audio scientist, but if you keep dividing that in half, you're getting the next octave. So you just keep going half and half. <laughs> anyway, four uh-huh. inches from the freaking head. Uh-huh. It sounds good. There we go. <laughs> All I can think about right now is Aaron Sterling going like, I don't know, it's like this far. It's like this far, and he holds his hands up. It's this far in front of you the bass drum what? head. It doesn't matter. It, it, you know he did every micro inch yeah. first before he found Whether Whether you do it, okay, I will say this. <laughs> Whether you do it mathematically or you just keep moving it until it sounds best, we all do it or we all yeah. should do it. And that is always the secret that no one gets is like, I don't know. I honestly just moved it until it sounded good. Like, there, you know, four inches is great. Um, but also, you never know. You get in a new studio that's much bigger, different reflections. Who knows? Um, okay, so all of the – most importantly, all of the kick mics are in the exact same position. Yep. You did your best to level it. And I think this needs to be said right up front. Because everyone will lose their minds on a negative level. There's no EQ and there's no compression. Zero. So you have to understand when you hear samples like this or you hear what you're about to hear, what Mike and I are listening for is what did that give me on its own that I can work with? We're, yeah. none of, we're not saying, oh, I wish my kick sounded like that. We're saying, okay, cool. That gives me the file that I can work with the most to get the sound I'm going for. Yeah. So what I in particular am listening for, and that's what I would suggest everyone listen for when we go through these eight files, how's the attack? How's the low end? How's the mid-range? And how is the bleed from the other instruments of the kit? So what I yeah. did was I played the bass drum. It's an 18-inch bass drum, by the way. Uh, I played the bass With drum. Muffling? Yeah, it's got like a um, like a real small pillow in there. So it's lightly touching both heads. Um, I play the bass drum by itself, like four notes. Then I play a beat. And then I go back to the bass drum. So each, each pattern, I try to play exactly the same thing, exactly the same dynamics. Um, I'd level match the audio file itself, so you're not hearing some louder than others. They're all the same exact volume. 
Uh, that was really important because I think if something sounds louder, we automatically think it sounds better. I agree. Uh, so what we're going to no. do is we're going to do a March Madness kind of okay. like shootout. We've got eight mics. So I'll tell you the mics we have. I'm not going to tell you what they are in the order that we're going to listen to them. But I had two Aston mics. I had an Aston Spirit and an Aston um, Origin, large diaphragm condensers. I had two Shure mics, a KSM32 and a KSM44. I had an M-Audio Solaris. I had a AKG D12VR, and that mic has three different settings, so there's a separate file for each one. There's the vintage red, there's the modern green, and there's the open blue filter. So that's all of our mics. So we're going to do, again, March Madness shootout. So we got number one versus number two. You and I are going to pick a winner. We're going to move on to round two, and then we'll go Boom. through. We're going to see where we end up with which our favorite mic of these eight is. So All right. let's check out number one. All right, that's mic number one. Let's check out number two. So, which of those two would you be more likely to use? Let's go with that. Mm. I okay. Once again, my caveat here is I'm looking for what is going to give me the most flexibility to do what I want to do, and what. And then on a negative side, I'm looking for what am I going to have to fake? What is mm. not there that I'm going to have to fake? Uh, mic two is super present, and it's got great punch to it and attack but it's like this mid-range punch mic one is a little bit um woofier sounding to me uh coming through my yamaha ns10s so there's not as much attack but i can probably fake that with some eq i don't know man i i would probably go with mic one even though unmixed mic two just has that presence that i kind of love all right you know what let's just go with your choices so round one all right, Mike one, one. One wins over two. All right, so let's do three. So this is three versus four. Mike number three. That's mic three. Let's do number four. All right. Uh, I, I'll take mic number four. 
I right. feel like Mic 3 was struggling a little bit with the low end. I mean, it was like almost clipping, but not. Uh, it just wasn't as clean yep. sounding to me. Yep. Uh, so I'll take mic number four. Did you I feel really, the same? I feel. I think f- mic number four kind of captured the drum very accurately, but number three had something funky. So if I was going to do a two mic setup, I would probably use that number three because it had like a like an overdriven kind of vibe that I liked. But yeah. as like a as a only kick mic, maybe not. So yeah, number four. So all right, let's do five. Number six. Okay, for me, five is the jam. I like five. five. There is a decent amount of bleed, yeah. but the bleed that I'm getting actually sounds like your snare drum. In six, good sounding mic, bass drum sounds good, but the bleed that I'm getting sounds like a more mid-range version of your snare. So I feel like I'm going to have to fight with that a little bit. Yep. I agree. I think five was just a cleaner sound. it would be easier for me to work with. I agree. Okay, we're getting down. Seven All versus right. eight. Seven versus eight. Here's seven. Last mic, number eight. hope we don't have to pit five against seven but i think we're gonna have to because i love those two seven was almost where i would almost leave it i would just put an overhead up and be fine eight sounded good but it's just uh i always call that a round sound like i feel like the mids are boosted the lows and the highs are a little down yeah i'm right with you i would use eight if it was a jazz kit and i was going for a darker sound but as a general bass drum that i want to have minimal bleed but really nice low end nice attack it's hard to beat number seven. Okay, so our bracket has been whittled down to the final right. four. Final four. We've got one versus four and five versus seven. So let's Damn review it. what number one sounds like. Okay. Versus four? Versus four. So here's four. 
this sucks. <laughs> those those two are pretty close. So I think we're probably also now getting into personal feelings and personal taste yeah. uh, because these two sound very similar to me. So obviously my taste is leaning in that direction. I like one a little bit more than four, and I have no explanation for it. All right. Well, what about you? I think these are both good mics that just capture the drum sound. So I agree. I think I would I would have leaned towards four, but okay. I could say one. Either one of these, I'd be happy. These using. ones are super close. And I, if you did a blind taste test and then in the end told me, oh, by the way, it was the same mic, I wouldn't be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I would never say that <laughs> to anything. There's nothing you could say where I would answer, what? Oh, uh, okay. But Let's they go. sounded pretty close. Okay, so, so we'll next say round. number one sneaks in. So now we've okay. got five versus seven. So here's number five. And lastly, number seven. That one's close, man. I'm really hoping that both five and seven are that. Uh, D, is it the D112 VR? There's an no, AKG, I'm not asking if it is. One, of the, mics one of the mics is an AKG yeah. D12 VR. Okay, because yeah. <laughs> I love five and seven, but seven is definitely my jam. Yeah. And, and only because it sounds like I'd have to do the least with it. I could almost use that as is. All right, so we've got one versus seven. So should we reveal who our finalists are or wait till we get a winner? Yes, let's reveal the finalists because I, I, I want to know personally. All right, I'm not going to tell you which one is which, but one of these two is the D12VR with the blue filter. Okay. And the other one, surprise, this might be the, uh, the underdog of the whole bunch, the M-Audio Solaris. What? Yep, the first condenser mic I ever purchased about 13 Damn. years ago. I didn't even know M Audio was making mics. That <laughs> I don't long. know if they um, still do, but so we've <laughs> but got they a did. M Audio Solaris, which is a multi-channel, a multi-pattern mic. It has cardioid, omni, and figure eight. By the way, all of these mics were in a cardioid pattern. They okay. were positioned four inches away from the head, maybe a half inch off center of the head. Um, so let's do it. So we've got the finals here: number one versus number seven. Let's do number one first. Lastly, number seven. Okay, so... 
Uh, the, the one that will be cutting down the nets tonight <laughs> is number seven. And I got to say, that's such a personal bias because when I listen to number one, I can think of 15 different drum set sounds that that would be perfect for. Yeah. And then when I listen to number seven, it's like, oh, for my drum set and the way I'm going to mix and the way that I like drums to sound, that's my jam. All right, it's unanimous. The winner is the AKG D12VR in the blue filter setting. So what's the blue filter? Is that the modern? It's the, they call it like the open. Like that, it was kind of, the scoop was, it has like a pre-EQ scoop in it. So it's kind of an unfair okay. advantage for this mic because it has an EQ built into it. But again, I didn't do anything. I just turned the mic on and, and that's what it captured. So the the green scoop is more of a modern, for okay. modern punchy sound. So if you have like pillows in your drum. I wonder if that was number five. That was number five. Good ears. <laughs> the blue filter is designed more for an open bass drum sound. So if you're going to unmuffle it, it or more of an out front setting. And the red is a vintage uh, sound. Well, so, to AKG's credit, sorry, to AKG's credit, that sounds nothing like a D112. That is, There is definitely a reason to own that mic and yeah. the D112 by itself. Yeah, exactly. And the good thing is, for any of you who might think both of these mics were great, the D12VR can also be put inside the drum. It is designed to withstand all that. So you could use both of these. You could do the D12 inside the drum and the M-Audio Solaris outside the drum and have a super kick drum sound. Done. Can you still find that M-Audio mic? I'm sure. I'm sure. It's wow. a great mic. I've used it. I use it as a room mic. I mean, it's a really versatile mic. Um, I've used it on the bass drum a bunch, so I had to make sure it was in this mix to see if, I, if my ears were deceiving me. But no, the AKG D12VR... I think it might be the best bass drum mic I've ever used. It's just a general bass drum inside, yeah. outside. It's it's a really, really good mic. Okay, so just so you guys know, with the VR, it, it's not cheap. I mean, normally a good bass drum mic is like 200 bucks, uh, But right. when you get into large diaphragm condensers, it's a little different. This microphone, when we're saying blue, red, green, there's literally a switch on it. And then you get a light, a blue light, a red light, or green light. So you know what you're in and it completely changes the sound of the microphone. So this is, I was actually really impressed with that. I've never heard this microphone before. I've heard of it, but I hadn't heard it. I was pretty impressed with that. Yeah. It's, it's, and if you don't turn the phantom power on, it functions like a dynamic mic. So there's really wow. four sounds you can get out of it. I didn't want to use that in this test because everything else is a condenser. Yeah, awesome. It. Have you had an open solo yet at a clinic? No music, no backing tracks, just Mike Dawson unleashed seven minutes. Yes, but the caveat for me is I don't play solos. I just I just compose music. I don't. So there'll never be a moment when I do the single stroke roll slow to faster. You know right. that the drum solo stuff. So yes, I have, but. And it's not because I don't respect drum solos. It's just for my own psyche. If I say I'm playing a drum solo, that puts me in a certain <laughs> mindset. If I say I'm going to sit down and just make up a piece of music, I can do that. So that's the first now, strategy for me is okay. just delineating. I'm comfortable with the idea of making a piece of music from scratch. Sure. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of trying to be Buddy Rich. It's just. It's so funny. As <laughs> soon as you said anything, I was just thinking like my first Buddy Rich cassette tape and that's what that was my introduction to drum solos and yeah. when i and even 40 years later when i think of drum solos i just i think of that and i'm like oh god that mm -hmm. seems daunting um so okay so i have a question when you play when you're making you know spontaneous composition do you involve your electronics for that 
Just depends. Not always. So this. Okay. So usually when I because a lot of my teaching has been on this idea because it's I've been trying to solve my own insecurity about how to just play drums in front of people. Okay. So it's all these different strategies. So there's there, I always start out with just a pair of mallets and a drum set, and what am I going to do? That's okay. always my first strategy, and then later it gets into well using electronics as a device to create ostinatos and rhythmic themes and. When I think of you as a player, you know, I don't think of you as somebody that's using electronics to cover up the drum set. I I think of your electronics the exact same way I would think of my cowbell or if I added a china. Like, you hear that stuff in your head. It's who you are as a player. And so it's part of your instrument. You are a true hybrid drummer, you know? Yeah, that's the goal. I I think of, I mean, I listen to so much Brian Eno ambient music. So that that to me is what the role of the loops and stuff is it's not to mm. create crazy layers of rhythm that i can't physically play it's to set a right. literal atmosphere for me to, yeah, mood. to play yeah. within and then it, it just that inspires you know because it'll never be some kind of rhythmic theme that's in that even if it's subtle so then that becomes my anchor for when i'm playing over top of it without me feeling like i have to like play the parts you know it's, it's gotcha. more like just this this texture that i can kind of Whatever emotion it puts me into, I, I kind of stick with it, which I like that because then I don't, I don't go into any stock stuff. It's not like now I got to play right. the the halftime beat and I've got to play the Latin part. Right, right. It's like that's yeah. the vibes. I've got five minutes to just live in this world and see where it takes me. Sure. So, are you conscious in the moment? This is something that I had to build while becoming a clinician. I had to be very conscious of how long I had played a particular dynamic, a particular Mm. density, and make sure that I didn't stay there too long because no matter how amazing it is, it can be very monotonous after 30 seconds of it. And so now I'm, I'm very conscious like a producer, like, wow, we've been up in this forte realm for quite a while. Let's give their ears, their chest, their breathing yeah. a break and bring it down. And then I'm also asking myself about the density of notes. What has been my overriding subdivision? Like, oh, I've been I've been up in sixteenth note triplets and thirty second notes for quite a while. Let's let's drop it all the way to a quarter note pulse and rebuild. Do you do you produce yourself in the moment like that? Yeah, I would say it's similar. I think I probably mentioned it to you before. There's there's two things that that I experienced in the past year that kind of guided me in in this this concept. And one was uh, I took a master class with a video game producer who produces the soundtracks. And the one thing that stuck was he said every four measures something has to change, whether it's a new element gets introduced or something gets subtracted or we shift to a different texture. So every four bars, something changes. That's the only way that that music and video games will work. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that is in the back of my mind. Like every four bars, I'm kind of reevaluating. Is this cool? Stay with it. Or do I change? And then yeah. and the other thing is similar is um, I know I'd mentioned it. I can't remember pronounce his name. Yannick, the bass player. Um plays with uh, you know him anyway i can't pronounce his last time he's he's great but he put oh yeah up yeah a, no we've talked yeah, yeah yeah he put up a video a while ago instagram about, stuff yeah and his idea is every time he plays a phrase he asks himself do i want to explore it more or do i want to change to something else so that mm. those two things it's like do i like what i just played is there some more ideas i can get out of it or is it time to just go somewhere yeah. else so that kind of gets rid of the any kind of like blocks of well i'm 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 committed to this halftime shuffle. I'm going to have to just stay there. 
It's like every four bars yeah. I can say, nah, am I done or not? <laughs> I mean, if, you know, finding for any young soloist, finding some Keith Carlock solos to find out how abrupt that decision can be. And if you do that decision with confidence, it works out just fine. Right. I mean, it doesn't you can matter. literally, there is no transition. Yeah. He hits a crash and it's 30 BPM slower. <laughs> and now it, we're not swinging and we're straight. And you accept it within a bar of time. You accept the change because he knows it wasn't an accident. Yeah. And he that's, just, I yeah. think, what we're looking for in our soloists. When we're in the crowd, I'm never, you know, I mean, this is the stuff I have to remember while I'm on stage. It's, what's get, it's what gets me through this stuff is I think about, well, what was I thinking last time I was in the crowd? Last time I went to a drum clinic was the UK drum show. I was performing, and but I was there a day early to see Benny and um, Stanton and a few others. And it, at no point did I judge any of them. It wasn't even mm. on my mind to think, are they good? The only thing that ever comes up when I'm watching a clinician is, do I feel comfortable in the audience or am I nervous for them? Interesting. And that's the only thing that can mess with me as an audience member. But the last thing I've ever thought is like, he missed that note or his singles were sloppy. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. I've seen some of the greatest drummers in the world off their game because maybe they just flew in from Beijing. And that never even occurred to me until they told me later. But the, but if somebody looks unsure of themselves and is doing the thing, I always call it the phantom foul, like when an NBA player <laughs> fakes a foul and he just yells to get the refs' attention. I hate that. When you mess so up much. a drum fill and you yell, I, I only really know you that. messed up because you yelled. <laughs> that, that's the worst. We want to talk about drumming pet peeves. That'd be one for me when you're so worried about what you played that you like yell at yourself while you're playing. Like, right. Don't do that. Just and you're not yelling at yourself. You're yelling to make sure the crowd knows, no, I know I messed up right there. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. you would have been fine. Just it keep on going. mess up. That's the call. Yeah, exactly. Question. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that having that four-bar phrase thing is definitely something I completely agree with. I'm, I'm never just randomly going. It, it can sound like that. But when I started really digging into Weckl's solos, in the beginning, it sounded like the dude just randomly played stuff for a mm. long time. And then eventually it was like, oh, there's a theme. Um, and yeah. that just even that thematic repetition was a big thing for me, like learning that, OK, my theme right now is rack tom, snare drum and bass drum. I can play anything I want, but I'm going to stay with this theme and this sound and these tonalities that are going out to the crowd. And it, and I'm going to explore without ever moving or. Uh, something like the Jojo Mayer thing that he did at PASIC. My pattern is the theme. Now I'm going to explore the entire orchestration. But yeah. there's something binding it all together, whether the audience knows it or not. I know it as a soloist. I'm not just free-floating all over the place and randomly hitting crap. Yeah. You know? Yeah, the big thing for me is always remember to take a breath, a musical breath mm -hmm. and an actual physical breath. Like, yeah. make a statement, let it let it sit what are you going to do next like that's drummers drummers guitarists pianists i think are the most guilty of not doing that because we don't actually have to breathe to play our instruments right. yeah so we can just keep on going and going but if you like just now i lost my breath i had to stop i had to think what was i right. trying to say but yeah. if you play trumpet you can only go four bars before like you have no more air and you have to yeah, stop yeah. it's a good point so that's something i always try to remember is like just because my hands can keep going for eight hours Play a statement, think about what you just played, and yeah. then go to something else or explore it more. That's when I'm thinking more like a melodic solo. But even in like a groove solo, the hands go on autopilot. For me, if it's a bass drum is playing the melody, I'm still thinking like play something, stop for a second. Play something else, stop for a second. I think that's I, often overlooked, and that's probably my 
biggest aversion to like the the quote-unquote drum clinic solo is it just gets to be this impressive highlights of chops and i find it just exhausting 30 seconds in i'm like i i I get it man you can play fast and loud and complicated but i'm not reading a textbook here like i want to i want to hear some some music it's tough yeah i think i think it's uh there is a balance there because I feel like, I mean, it's a great time to talk about it because I'm currently on a clinic tour. And I know that one thing I'm trying to do on this clinic tour that I don't think I've ever accomplished very well is I want them to hear me instead of hear what I think should happen at a clinic. Yeah. Because what I think should happen at a clinic is not how I play drums. Yeah. And so I'm trying really hard to, it's funny, I've, the way that you tell the audience, I'm going to compose some music now, and then that's your way to get your mind out of saying, I'm going to do a drum solo. Mm-hmm. I probably have played seven or eight solos, and they're always in the guise of, let me demonstrate what I just taught you. But uh-huh. then I go on a four-minute journey, right, and right. it shows up five or six times, but I'm playing a million things other than what I just taught. And the one thing I'm, I'm trying really hard to do that I've noticed is when I think it's okay to go on autopilot... I get lost in the phrasing. I get lost in the ideas. I really am just playing autopilot drumming. Mm. But if I can be in the moment and sing the whole time, it's so much more musical. Because honestly, I can only sing musical things. I can't sing the chops that I can play. (laughs) Right. Because it would sound like... (laughs) I don't don't ever sing that. But if I'm singing... It's somewhat musical. And it's it's much more easy to understand. And then I can also, because I'm singing it while it's playing, I can repeat it. And I I really enjoy... I think um, Benny's first DVD had that exercise where you would improvise one bar and repeat one bar. And I do something similar where whatever I play on bar one of the four-bar phrase becomes the motif. And then that motif stays for the next three bars but half of it's improvised and half of it's that motif. So it, mm-hmm. it's I know what the starting point is, um, and I'm usually and that's more like eight bar phrases because I'm doing like two bar phrases for four cycles, mm-hmm. and then every eight bars I'm resetting with a new motif. But the audience wouldn't really know because it it's not like a massive statement. It's just it might be the first three notes. I'm like, okay, cool. Mm. Right, left, right will start everything, and then flam, kick, kick will start everything on the next cycle or whatever it is. So. Yeah, there's so many devices. I think one that I'm trying to explore now is is re- repeat yourself, but vary it just enough at the end of the repeat that then that becomes the the leading inspiration yes. for the next idea. Mm-hmm. And that's coming for me definitely from a jazz background of like never finishing a phrase. Actually, you just keep it going. So it's just this right. perpetual development of a theme that that morphs into new themes. And I mean that's that's way off in the distance for me but that's kind of what i'm thinking if i'm even when i'm playing beats yeah. i think like okay i play one measure i'm going to play the same thing but i'm going to change something and then whatever i change is actually going to become the anchor for the next thing so it just keeps yeah. evolving but it's related to the, what i started with again it might sound like i'm just playing but it's all for me to get rid of that anxiety of i don't know what the hell to play <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean that's <laughs> something that i still haven't done and i don't know that i'm ever going to want to do that is i've never sat down and told the crowd, I'm going to play a solo for you. Let's see what happens. Like, there's something mm. that I've kind of thought about. And it could be as simple as, honestly, a tempo. Like, okay, I'm going to solo in this tempo. It's going to start sparse. And, and it might have this rhythmic hook to it. Uh, I, I, I still 
I don't know how long it's been since that Modern Drummer Festival with Nathaniel Townsley, but I still can't get away from that rhythmic hook of just mm. the one and the uh. It's such yeah. a great two-bar phrase. Boom, gun. And then I, I like, do whatever I want, do whatever yeah. I want, do whatever I want. Boom, gun. <laughs> it's like, cool. Yeah, um, I think that's you know, why that's, like, like syncopation is a good source for that. You can just grab one measure yeah. and say, that's my theme, and I'm going to play yep. that, and then have a measure do my own thing. I come back to the theme. I don't have to play the theme the same way every time, but as long yeah. as I hit that anchor rhythm... Then you've got yeah. one bar or three bars to explore. Um, yeah, again, it's, for, it's always the like, what what are you going to play next? Or that's mm. the anxiety for me. Inevitably, if I don't know what I'm going to play, I just noodle and then what the hell am I doing? It sounds like a motorcycle. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what I, I. It's funny, like what might be the most impressive to the intermediate drummers in the crowd is the stuff I'm the most sick at myself about playing. You're like, oh, it's like oh, dude, there you it is know, again. <laughs> you know, that was that bull crap, flubbity, flubbity chop. Um, so I would give a little bit of advice to our future clinicians out there. Um, people that are going to have to handle a 90 minute slot or a 60 minute slot in a clinic form. One thing that I've noticed over the last two or three years is I used to have my tracks and like literally a 10 minute drum solo towards the end. And that is so much more daunting than having three or four three minute solos throughout the clinic mm. that are just demonstrations, but still have all the fanfare and everything. But I don't have to keep your attention for 10 minutes of drumming. It's such an abnormal expectation. Like it is it's for you as the player and for the audience, frankly, I mean, Three. Yeah. We're used to three-minute songs, and you now you're going to play 15 minutes of drumming or 45 right. minutes of drumming, which I've seen uh, yeah. many, many uh, times. I just, uh, yeah, I just turned down that five-week tour in China because I was like, <laughs> they don't, they want me to rip for an hour. I'm not going to. I don't. I don't want to do that. I have no desire to do that. Uh, so, all right. Well, hopefully this helps some of you understand that between. Mike and myself, we're both clinicians. We both played our entire lives, and we still get anxiety about drum solos and how to f really tell an engaging story without uh, turning it into something negative. You know, I mean, it starts yeah. off good, but then all of a sudden you start r talking to yourself in your head as you're playing, and it just goes down <laughs> downhill from there. So if you can stay in the moment, if you can sing your parts, if you can make things musical, I promise, even with a room full of drummers, Musical drumming wins out over impressive drumming because yeah, human yeah. beings can can sing that stuff. I mean, think about this is the one question I'd like to leave you guys with on this topic. When you hear someone play a drum solo, what can you sing back to me? And if there's nothing, it doesn't matter how impressive it was. I can sing probably 15 of uh, Dave DiCenzo's motifs from his modern drummer mm -hmm. clinic solo i can sing the whole tony royster clinic or mm. solo i mean I, I can when he goes into the go-go beat when he goes into his <laughs> flip the right. splashes double bass thing I, I know the whole thing and those it, it was impressive but it was very theme based you yeah. know, he had themes that he just kept cycling through and same thing with nathaniel townsley so hope that helps mm -hmm. 